Ahoy Mets fans, welcome to episode 235 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. It's painful to be a Mets fan right now. The team looks pathetic. They've lost what feels like a million games in a row with a million injuries, but that's okay because we're here to talk to you about it. We're going to through this together like a big old session of group therapy over the internet through earbuds. So first up, Chris McShane and I talk about this past week and a half of Mets baseball. We have some laughs. Hopefully you'll join us in those laughs and, uh, It'll make this uh, bitter pill down a little bit uh, smoother. So here we go. Well, Chris. Yeah. We're back. We're back. <laughs> uh, and in a way, it feels like the Mets are back. We've had this this other team playing for the last two, year, two and a half years or so. But it feels like our Mets are back again. Uh, this has not been a good week. The team is looking bad offensively. The pitching has not been terrible, but it certainly hasn't been great. There's just not much fun happening with the Mets right now. Uh, so, because you are our eternal optimist, how uh, how worried are you at this point, I guess? Are you worried at all? Worried about the long term of the season? Not too much. Um, that being said, this team this team has made it about as challenging to enjoy baseball and, uh, you know, think good things are going to happen with the way they've played over the last – it'll be 11 games now. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty long stretch. It is. Yeah, and they haven't lost all of them, but – they won one. They've come close. <laughs> uh, so not super worried in terms of the long term. I still think this is a good team. Uh, you know, there's been things that have been encouraging, What you know, from guys either who have put up good numbers or, you know, Zach Wheeler start on Sunday night. Yeah, he gives up the grand slam early. Obviously, that's not ideal. You You don't want to do that, but the way he pitched the rest of that night, uh, you know, Conforto being red hot, Bruce having a good start to his year. Uh, Duda had hit well until the elbow thing, which I guess we could also blame on uh, Gazelman, who's really not had a great start to his first full season in no, the majors. No, he has not. So it's obviously a mixed bag on an individual basis so far. And just a terrible week and a half as a team. I still think this is a good team that will contend. I think they will, you know, look back at this April as one of those bad stretches. Uh, You know, I don't want to support everything Terry Collins says, but when he touches on that, I think that makes sense. But these losses all do count. You know, it's, it's not a Blue Jays start where it was, Two wins and, you know, double-digit losses. No, but it's a Blue Jays stretch. Yeah. yeah it's it's not unlike the the first week that they had. Right? Yeah. I mean, what what are they at now? I'm just curious. They're not... They're, they're still only 6-14, and 14, which is, you know, the Mets, assuming uh, this game tonight is a loss, which is very, very likely at this point. 
the Mets will be eight and twelve. So that's still there's still a lot less distance between the wins and losses there. Uh, but the overall point, the losses still count. You do have to get yourself back up over 500, and that'll take, you know, just either winning a few series or a winning streak of, uh, well, at this point, five games. <laughs> and they've done that this year. We know they can do that. I think it's just it's odd. It's been such a different start to the year compared to the last two Aprils. Yeah. Because they had winning streaks in both. You know, obviously 2015 started strong, was a little more middling for a while, and then ended incredibly. Um, but they did have a – that was the year they had the 11-game winning streak in April, right? Yeah, I was there for the first or second game of that. Yeah. Yeah, there's a uh, there's an annual pub crawl in April that we do, even though we're all like over 30 now. Which is good. It keeps it respectable. Absolutely. It the polar opposite of SantaCon. Uh, <laughs> Thank goodness. Yes. In every imaginable way. <laughs> and yeah, you know, we, uh, we'd we been spoiled because there are a decent amount of Mets fans. You know, people don't always expect that in the Bronx, but there are. And, you know, both times, obviously two years ago, was during that crazy winning streak. And then last year, what was it? I think they they didn't get into double digits, but I think they won seven or eight in a row. They had you know? a really good run in April last year. Yeah, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It was eight in a row and nine out of ten that they won, which is, which is the pretty mirror, much the, the mirror job, image, right. yeah. <laughs> and it was even better than eight out of ten because they had won what, five out – Five of seven going into the eight-game winning streak. So I'm not trying to depress everybody here, but <laughs> they were 15 and seven uh, on April 30th last year. Oh boy! So you know, but then things fell apart. Uh, I I guess if I'm looking for optimism right now, every injury that we've heard about has been manageable the new ones that have happened since the season began you know Darnell bangs his wrist into somebody's bat making a throw that is like the quintessential travis darno injury oh it, it, it's but almost comically Darnell. it didn't land him on the di- yes <laughs> i like darnoian <laughs> yeah it, it's um it's not something that cost him months it cost him days. Uh, you know, due to his hyperextended elbow, we don't know yet how long that'll keep him out, but it's not something that, at least to this point, is going to require surgery or anything like that. You know, it, it, they're healable injuries. Even the hamstring injuries, which can be a pain and linger, uh, with Cespedes and Cabrera both sort of working through them. You know, those aren't things. Nobody's hit the shelf and made you think, oh, when, when is he going to come back since the season began? So that that is my my shred of optimism right now, I guess. At least no one's out for the year. Uh, all right, so I, I'm not going to openly disagree with anything you said. I think everything you said has value. 
everything you said has a very real um, shred of truth and optimism to it. However, I'm just going to offer some alternative uh, theories here. Uh, First things first, the Mets have had this terrible losing streak all against teams in the division, which doesn't matter all that much in April, but will matter considerably in September and in August because uh, a bad record against division rivals just ha- it's just harder hold to crawl out of, right? Like every loss against the Nationals is worse in the standings than a loss against the Reds or against the Giants or something like that. So these aren't just April losses. They're April losses in division, which means that teams are going ahead of them in a more uh, aggressive way than they would have if it was an, a non-division rival. That's number one. Number two, it, it it seems to me like... All right, so uh, as a parent, one of the things I like to see is that when my kids make mistakes, I like to see that they're learning from those mistakes and that they hopefully won't make the same mistakes again. I don't see that happening with, 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 this, with the Mets. I, I think, you know... The last couple of games, you really, I mean, I am the most, like, I'm the most ardent anti-Terry Collins guy in the world. I can't blame Terry Collins for these losses. But I can certainly blame Terry Collins for the losses that happened the four or five days before the injuries all popped up. Um, And I just feel like the team is not learning its lesson in terms of roster construction, in terms of bullpen usage. And so, yes, they're losing, but the losses don't even have a, a value of of letting them get this shit out of the way. Because I feel like they're going to make these same mistakes in May and June and July in terms of, like I said, roster construction and bullpen usage. Just the alternation between a seven- and eight-man bullpen, seemingly without a whole lot of reason, that I think has been maybe the most frustrating thing about the way they've operated. I don't know that... You know, whether or not that exact thing has cost them games, I don't know. But, but yeah, just kind of, you know, watching them, even though the DL gets shortened, watching them play short. Gil Martin is up and down on days that it seems like he came up a day too early and went down three days too late, you know? <laughs> just weird, weird stuff. <laughs> And he's like, it's Sean Gilmartin. You know, it's not it's not a difference maker. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, like I said, I, I feel like this isn't meaningful suffering. This is just painful, painful suffering. Um, I, I will say that there's a couple of things that these uh, injuries are, are doing for the Mets. Number one, they're giving Conforto more playing time, which is a good thing. In just about every way, um, and it's doing so without getting Jay Bruce out of the lineup because Bruce has been playing first for Duda. So there's there's been that, and I think it's a bit of a wake up call that the Mets need to sign Kelly Johnson. Yeah, which, you know we, we we've been advocating for for a long time. Yeah, like is the dude still interested in playing baseball? Maybe I don't get why he's not on a team. He hasn't not announced even... his retirement, has he? No, and not even just, like, why isn't he on the Mets? Just why isn't he on a team? 
he's been a capable bat, you know, in the last two years, particularly with the Mets. But overall, I don't know. Baseball is weird sometimes. It really is. Like Angel Pagan didn't get a gig. And I don't know if he just held out and said, if I'm not being paid what I think I should be, which he has every right to do. And, you know, he generally has been good uh, for several years now. Then maybe that was the sticking point. But usually you'll see a guy take like a one-year deal, something like that. Not that he's the greatest player out there, but it's just weird to see guys who have been productive very recently struggle to, uh, you know, find a major league gig. Yeah. And I went back and looked because I was curious a few days ago as Jose Reyes was just hitting zero and still playing every day. I went and looked like, oh, what was the last thing, uh, the last rumor with Johnson? And it was late in spring training. And I forget if it was Dacoma or Carrig, but it was somebody on the Mets beat saying essentially that the Mets were really happy with the roster, that there wasn't room for a guy like Johnson, and he was still looking for a major league deal. And like there was room, there was room then, honestly. And there's ample room now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying Kelly Johnson, everyday third baseman, is a solution that we should want. And obviously, Wilmer Flores, who we didn't even get. <laughs> The Mets had it was such a like quick burst of freak injuries that uh, we didn't even touch on him having a, an infection in his knee. Yeah, Kelly Johnson, everyday third baseman, is not necessarily something that you strive for. I take it, it over be, Jose Reyes, everyday third baseman, right now. Right, exactly. That that I mean, the bar there is extremely low. <laughs> and I, I you know, take Chris McShane, everyday third baseman, at this point over Jose Reyes. So. <laughs> Um. Yeah, yeah. I think I would be worse. <laughs> probably. No offense to you, but yeah, pro- probably. I don't know if I can manage a 100 on base percentage. You just have a better eye than Reyes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I I would just not swing. I would just try to let the other guys walk me. You would crouch really, really tightly. Yeah. To create as small a strike zone as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Uh. You know. I did grow up watching Jeff Bagwell and. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Uh yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I have a question for you, Chris. Of of all of the things that have sort of happened the last week and a half, obviously we can't be too mad about freak injuries. You can't be too mad about extra innings games going the wrong way once in a while. But what's been the most troubling aspect for you of the Mets last ten or eleven games? Hmm. I mean, it might just go back to the roster management or the lineup management. Just sort of like I know publicly you you have to present that you're calm and everything, and and that's fine. I get it. I I, I don't knock the team for doing that, but I don't know. It just seems like there's a little bit too much trust in certain things right now. Reyes being probably number one on that list. Um, so yeah, that that for me has been frustrating. It hasn't been an overall like 
I think the bullpen probably got knocked a little bit too much as the team was playing a bunch of extra inning games and Familia wasn't back yet, which clearly affected how everybody else performed, uh, if only because they were used so frequently. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's been a – when you consider Familia was out for 15 games and then you have a handful of other players who have been out, whether it's 2, 3, 10, you know, whatever – uh it it's yeah it, it it's the perfect bad storm it's the perfect storm of shit <laughs> yeah pretty much so i guess that's it for me it's not i mean reyes himself has been the most frustrating player to watch i don't want to spoil too much of an email answer <laughs> but i mean like the notion that he deserves and he's earned this time, I just don't get it. Like, it's not. I think sometimes younger fans might have a propensity to discredit veteran players too soon. But I also think there's a point on the other end of the spectrum where loyalty to a player just because he was good once can really hurt your team. Specifically good ones for your team. Like that that's a special alchemy there of right. like, you know, he was he was good when you remember the team being good and you know everybody remembers the uh you know the exciting Jose Reyes plays. People tend to forget that, you know, for about 3 seasons every at bat he took, he bluffed a bunt on the first pitch and gave himself an instant 0-1 count, right? You forget stuff like that. Because it's not the big, exciting highlights that are in your memory banks. You remember the good stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely understand what you're saying uh, in regards to Reyes. Yeah, and, and you got to remember, too, that Terry Collins was around the organization. Not necessarily when Reyes was still in the minors, but he was around. Like, he was part of the Mets, you know, and their yeah. extended family and everything. And Hell, he was know, the manager when Reyes won the batting title. That's true. Yeah, he goes back farther. So he had him he had him then as a player and then immediately preceding his managerial tenure, he was uh minor league field coordinator, right? Yeah. So and like you know, obviously those guys are paying attention to what the major league team is doing. So so yeah, you're right. That that like team connection makes it a lot you know, I guess easier to fall into that trap. Yeah. I, I think for me, the most alarming thing is just, um, and again, like this is not something that I necessarily would would expect to change, and I think it's important to note that. But just the total ineptitude of the coaching staff thus far. There hasn't been. I mean, uh, uh, let me let me backtrack a little bit here. There's obviously no way for me to really evaluate like Glenn Sherlock's job so far, right? Right. But in terms of pushing the right buttons at the right time in game, I can't really think of anything Collins and Co have done this season that's been that I felt like yes, they made the right call there. Absolutely, it was gutsy and they did the right thing or you know, this is obviously the right move, and they and they did that move. I just feel like the, the the team is so poorly coached and managed at this point 
but because they've made the playoffs the last two seasons, it's going to take another 10-game losing streak on top of this one for Collins to, to even to even have the discussion about him losing his job pick up any traction whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, and I, I mean I don't think yeah, I don't think that's going to be on the table at all. And even if it were, then I don't wouldn't see them doing anything drastic. Right. One of my favorite sports things of this year and I just keep bringing it back to hockey, I guess, because it makes me happier right now. But <laughs> Was that, and this is something that I think even in hockey, it's uh, is rare, and I can't think of it ever happening in baseball. But Claude Julien had started the season in, in I think his ninth or tenth year as coach of the Bruins. They struggled. They fired him. Uh, Montreal was going through a rough time. They hired him and fired their coach. It's you know, not often that you see a guy who was in charge of one team be in charge of another the same season. Yeah. Right. And to make that transition that quickly. And then I also found it entertaining and I'm not like a Bruins hater, uh, but just entertaining on that level that in the first round of the playoffs, granted both of his teams made it there, but they, they also both got eliminated in the first round. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my, Hockey is distracting me from this mess right now, <laughs> and I am trying to share that with you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I do. Um, but, I mean, am I being overly harsh on the coaching staff right now? Maybe. I mean, it's it's just been a, a weird stretch. There have been a couple really bad games, you know, but, Yeah. I feel like they could easily be 500, not necessarily, you know, on a tear, but they could easily be 500 even with everything that they've done. So, and doesn't, you know, d- like, you know, I, I try not to make too big of a deal out of individual games, but if they were 500, they would have, they would, they would have won five games they lost. If the Mets missed the playoffs by five games this season, is that a legitimate cause for uh is then that a legitimate cause to change management it could be i mean i kind of get the sense that collins might just look to retire from his own you know personal preferences after the season regardless of how it ends right so we'll see but yeah tonight tonight and the last several just not good no uh, we're going to get to emails in one second, but I, I want to kind of close the book on this by, you know, a, again, addressing your optimism for the team. At what point do you really start to worry? Do they have to lose, you know, 18 of 20? Does it have to be just, you know, a month from now, everything looks the same? What What has to happen for you to really panic at this point? I would probably start to worry about the season if in, let's see, today's April 26th. Let's just say three weeks from today. If they're significantly below 500, and I guess if I'm making an arbitrary line, that's five or more games, right? So, so if they went 500 from the next three weeks, you'd still be very worried. 
Well, I guess that would be on the borderline. <laughs> no, because no, because that would put them. Aren't they five hundred five hundred right now? Uh yes. So they Wait, would, no, 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 no. They're eight and twelve. They're four under. So they need to go. Aren't they going to be eight and thirteen in mere minutes though? No, no, no. They're they're eight and twelve after losing. Oh, they are okay. Tonight. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they're four under. I guess okay. in three weeks from now, if it's worse than it is tonight, then I will start to think. I don't know. You know, maybe maybe this isn't going to be the season that we all hoped it would be. I, mean, I don't think anybody hoped that or realistically expected that they would run away with the division. Although that is fun. Uh, but obviously the expectation is that they will finish first or second in the division. Right. So, yeah, it's that, that would be around the time. And even at the end of May, there's a lot of time left, but around then I would start to go, uh, maybe not, you know, maybe they're not good this year, but, uh, yeah. Either that or if they lose like 10 more in a row now <laughs> and and put themselves mathematically out of my equation that I just created on the fly. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to hold you to that created equation. Uh, no, I'm not, but I, uh, <laughs> I am we interested. We should talk about it when they're like six games over 500 in three weeks. Hey, that would be a wonderful thing. I'll I'll be happy if they're at 500 in three weeks. Yeah, oh, that that would be fine. That would be a decent overall stretch of baseball between now and then. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's get to your emails. Uh, as always, you can email the podcast, podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. So uh, first question is, first email is from David. David says, have I missed any status updates on Steven Matz? It seems like nothing's been reported since he went on the DL. And uh, well, let's just let's deal with that part of this first. Uh, just today, it was announced that he is throwing. Both he and, and Seth Lugo are throwing from 120 feet with no uh, discomfort, and they'll both start throwing from a mound soon. So that's good news. Yeah, you know that it that is probably the best mess news, <laughs> recent news. Yeah, probably. Cespedes is playing a full game and looking okay tonight. Was I would say second, but yeah, you you can't blame his error on his. Uh... Hampshire no, injury. no, no, uh, just, just a forgettable game. Yeah, just, just just the ugliest game you can imagine, that's all. Yeah. All right, second question. Jose Reyes has been perhaps the worst player in MLB thus far this year. Yep. And it's fair to say that at this point, especially after the uh, dropped pop-up, this email is a couple days old, that it's costing the Mets some games. I can understand the organization won't likely promote Rosario until the Rule 2 deadline passes in June. But is there any reason not to be playing Wilmer Flores every day at third? Well, he has a staph infection, so that's that. Or an infection of some kind. Um, even if he doesn't hit righties all that well, he'd sure do better than Reyes is this year. Uh, I agree with you. I think if Flores is healthy, Flores needs to be playing every day. Agree yeah. or disagree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And Unless... You know, unless we get to the point that Rosario's up and either Cabrera or Walker moves to third, or unless Flores is out and uh, and you know David Wright com- works through the shoulder thing and comes back. I was just gonna say, notice we haven't said David Wright yet, but yeah, well, no, it's I will I will keep bringing until he decides he's not trying anymore. I'll keep I'll keep his name in the mix, <laughs> but but 
you know, I mean, it doesn't sound like Flores is going to be out as long as we know Wright is because of the move to the 60-day dis- disabled list. Right. But, yeah, in the scenario that he's back, then you can, you know, mix and match a little. But if it's Flores and Reyes are your two options, just play Flores every day. Yeah. Please. Yeah. Please. And the third part of this email and final part, in a similar spirit, is there any reason to continue to play Curtis Granderson every day when Michael Conforto and Juan Lagares sit on the bench? I think we're all grateful for all he's given to the team, but he's at the end of his contract and he's clearly inferior to the players right in the pine. No, you can't just bench Granderson. Sorry. You can you can mix everybody in, but you can't just bench him. You can't just bench him in terms of you have to give other guys time off as well, or you think it would be a poor baseball move to bench him? Uh, poor baseball move, poor Mets clubhouse move. Well, just, the clubhouse move I think everybody agrees with, but sell me yeah. on it being a poor baseball move. I mean, Granderson's been good. I, I I love that over the winter everybody wanted to burn Bruce at the stake, and then <laughs> he has three good weeks, and all of a sudden Bruce is great. Get rid of Granderson instead. Like, I don't, look at the collective body of their work over the last three years. I trust Granderson over the long run more than I trust Bruce. Agree completely. However, so, don't don't you think that right now the Mets' best outfield configuration on any given day doesn't necessarily involve? Uh, Granderson? Maybe not, but well, right now they don't, right now it's not a problem. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. Part of this is that the, uh, the Conforto, Conforto's biggest supporters annoy me to the point that I can't enjoy his play. Really? Much. Oh yeah, and that's that's like it's one of those moments here like I am too far into like the Mets <laughs> fan universe that yeah. I'm even thinking that. Like I stopped listening to talk radio like 5 or 6 or 7 years ago now. So I that part of it's gone. So I don't I don't even know what aside from like secondhand things. I I don't Twitter. know what's going on with that. Right, but whether it be Twitter or whatever where I'm just like I, I don't know. There's something about it with with that. Now, if I take a step back, Conforto's been great. Um, I just, you know, I I can't write off what he did. Maybe it was all his wrist, you know. But he he played for a long time and was bad last year. And I can't just discredit that. And it's not, you know, it, it's nothing about him specifically it's just you know we the way things change with a few weeks of performance is always amazing to me you know i mean espn is terrible at covering baseball games but during the sunday night game they were like well you know jay bruce was really only bad for like a week and then he finished the season strong and it's like no that that isn't what happened you know he was bad for a long time and then he had a great like last 10 days of the season and that you know that helped but it would have helped a lot more if he was not as bad for the first six weeks um so yeah i one of my my overarching philosophy i think with everything baseball is to take a step back zoom out and all that and you know if you want conforto to play regularly uh I, i think i'll credit jeff here because i think it was him 
I'll credit him whether this was his idea or not, tweeting that, you know, you could essentially give Granderson two days, give Bruce a day, give Cespedes a day each week, and then Conforto's playing, you know, four games just with those. Uh, maybe maybe give Bruce another one or whatever, you know. Yeah. Four or five games a week, and then the average week in, in baseball is six games. That's uh, That's almost an everyday player, and maybe you still protect him a bit from lefties, whatever. Like, there's a way to do it without saying, oh, this one dude has to sit on the bench. Well, see, I mean, look, I, I'm not advocating for benching Granderson uh, every day. However, I think that right now, even with the situation as it currently stands, I think the Mets outfield is far better when you have it go Cespedes, Ligaris, Conforto left to right with Bruce playing first base right now. And I think if you were to do that with more regularity, I'm not saying every single game with more regularity, I think you would see better results. Uh, I also think that if Bruce is not playing first base, a Cespedes Conforto Bruce outfield is marginally worse defensively, but I would say more than marginally better offensively at the moment. I'm not saying that Granderson can't get back to where he was at some point last year. I just think that when offense is in short supply right now, to do anything to limit the potential offense for a game is is a mistake. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> They really just need to win some games. Yeah, it, all this goes away when they win some games. Yeah. Um, all right, our uh, our second email of the night comes from Jonathan. And he says, do you think it is absolutely necessary to win now, uh, being 2017 and 2018 seasons, due to Atlanta, Philly, and Miami seemingly on the track to rebuild and maybe and maybe very good in just two to three seasons? Or rather, do you think the Mets are in position to sustain themselves as perennial playoff contenders beyond the 2018 season and will go into every season duking it out with all four teams in the NL East? If you had to choose which of these two scenarios, which would you pick? The Mets being in the World Series for the 2017 and 2018 seasons with the chance to win, not knowing if they would win, and then not making the playoffs if the following... Wait, didn't we already have this question? Yeah. Did I, I was going to say. Did I grab the wrong email, or did was this question sent twice? Uh, I think he got the wrong email. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> that is poor podcast planning on my part. Let's see. I didn't notice it in the Skype window either. So full disclosure. So yeah, we went through. Uh, no, no, no. We're looking at what's funny is that the, the spirit of that question is not that different from the spirit of the one that we got for this episode. Uh, there we are. Yes. Okay. All right. Sorry. This is from David. My apologies. Jonathan, we answered your question already. Go back and listen <laughs> to it. Uh, <laughs> so David says, considering the injuries to Lucas Duda, Travis Arnold, Wilmer Flores, the offense in all senses of the word, struggles of of Jose Reyes, and the defensive lapses from Reyes and Isabel Cabrera, and now, worst of all, potential injury to Cespedes, I believe the time has come to bring up our big prospects, Ahmed Rosario and Dom Smith. Last I checked, they're both doing well in Vegas, so bringing them up would help the Mets fill injury roles while not pushing these prospects before they are conceivably ready. Still, I would try to bat them down on the order to keep pressure and expectations as low as possible. What do you think of the idea? 
And what do you think of this potential Mets lineup? Granderson, Cabrera, Conforto, Walker, Bruce, Rosario, Smith, Rivera, pitcher. Hope the Mets can get back to their winning ways. Dave from York, Pennsylvania. Um, well, some of this has resolved itself because yes. a couple of the guys are back, at least temporarily. Yes. But you could still, you know, going back to the outfield configuration, you could still get into a spot where you're, you're mixing in the four primary outfielders on this team. Uh, Juan Lagares has really become an afterthought right now. I'm still holding off hope for Lagares, but that's just me. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's it, you, you could essentially still do these same things. As dribble at a third, Rosario at short, Smith at first. Uh, I'd be okay with it, with the expectation that it is a short-term fill-in, and you're not relying on these guys to be amazing from the get-go. You know, uh, they're beyond the extra year of control mark at this point. Super 2, obviously, is a factor, and I imagine it's a significant one for them uh, with these guys. But in the short term, I would support this, especially Rosario Smith. And it's not even like knocking his status as a prospect or anything. Just Bruce has looked capable at first base. He's, you know, obviously gotten off to this good start. Uh, You can probably get as much out of him as you're going to get out of Smith in the short term. Yeah. Agreed. But Rosario is really appealing because, you know, a combination of things his his status coming into the season was a little bit higher. Um, you know, we know he plays a really great defensive shortstop. You know, that, that's something that, that, that part of your game doesn't really change that much when you make the leap. Like if you've done that throughout your minor league career, you don't have to adjust to major league batted balls coming at you, you know. Like, there's not the, Giancarlo Stanton's not in the minor leagues, but the the concept of a hard hit ball is, you know, your defense. I think is going to be a lot easier to transition up. So, uh, so yeah, that that part of his game, and just he would have to be better than Reyes. Well, yeah, I mean, to me, if you bring up Rosario, that solves so many infield issues right off the bat. You know, um, you would then move Cabrera, hopefully, to third base at least some of the week, or Walker to third base at least some of the week, and then your overall infield defense gets better. You uh, you could also give Cabrera just a goddamn day off because it seems like that guy <laughs> never takes a day off. Right. And while I respect the 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 we're gonna use a very amazing avenue term here the grishin that is that you know that he shows by playing every day that's a good thing but if you had a capable shortstop you could give him a day off without guilt and that is really important for keeping him healthy throughout the year especially because the Mets have an option on him next season and he might still be a part of their plans beyond 2017 so oh yeah oh that option should be a steal. It should be, yeah. You know, so you want to keep him healthy. You want to keep him happy. Uh, I would think that having a uh, having a, a, a Med Rosario on the team would allow everybody in the infield to play a little bit better. 
you know, I don't know if how, how close the listeners are watching the game tonight, but Reyes couldn't even throw over to first base in non-pressure situations very well tonight. He just doesn't look like the same player he was even last season. You know, I can I can almost understand the desire you want to keep him on the team if you believe he can be a pinch runner late in games or spell somebody a shortstop every now and then or, to, you know, play third base every now and then. But I don't even think Reyes has played himself into a roster spot right now, let alone a starting position. Yeah. Yeah, and we're getting beyond the point of, oh, it's only X plate appearances. Right. You know, it's 77 right now. That's not a couple hundred, but it's also not 10. Right, yeah. You know, 10 is like two bad long games, especially if you're hitting in the leadoff spot. But you get up to 100, 150 if he's still hovering around this worst hitter, worst qualified hitter in baseball thing. You know, that's an issue that you, you can't just, I don't know, you can't be patient with him forever. And I think what's frustrating about this from a Mets fan perspective is I think we've all seen players, whether it's Conforto last season or, you know, insert good young player here, who the Mets and not the ancient Mets, the Mets of recent history, have given up on young players for having stretches like Reyes is having right now. At least given up in the short term on that. And, uh, you know... I don't think I can't remember an everyday player looking as bad as Reyes since I don't know who Chris, who would you say was the last Met the last the last Met? Yeah. Who played that much and was that bad by yeah. memory? Hmm. I mean so like some of my 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 instincts here are going for guys that definitely didn't play that much. I would say Gary Matthews Jr. Okay. He, he didn't yeah. play that much. I was say Rick Ankiel. He didn't play that much. Yeah, Ankiel was more. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, Mayberry was pretty bad, but I kind of go back to Frank Core. Oh, maybe it was Frank Core. Where it was just, and uh, to be fair to Frank Core, he was never this bad. But got that respect in playing time commensurate with a player far better than he actually was yeah Uh i remember i was in pawtucket rhode island at a pawtucket red sox buffalo bisons game when i got the alert on my phone that the mets had traded ryan church for jeff francor and uh i was to, 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 to tell you how how burned into my memory this memory is I was in line in the bathroom, and somebody had scrawled on the wall, Clay Buckled sucks dick. And I remember looking at that and thinking, like, oh, man, so does Jeff Francoeur. This is this is a bad player we just traded for. And that's before he had that, like, was it three weeks of looking really good that he tricked everybody? That he parlayed then two seasons worth out of? That out of ten days of looking good? Something like yeah. that? yeah. That sounds about right, yeah. Ugh. They got me sad thinking about Jeff Francoeur. It always comes back to Frenchie. The crazy thing is he wasn't even on the team that long. 
he was on a season for like a year and a half, wasn't he? If not more, two and a half years. No, well, looking back, I, my, by memory, I would have. It feels like five years. Oh yeah, no, it feels like he was a long time met. But um, I remember that I haven't always been someone to get MLB the show, but I remember I had it when he was a met. And you know, the there's like the be a pro career mode, right? So going through that. I make my way up the ranks. My guy makes it to the team. And it's at the time it was probably like, well, let's just be accurate here. He was, he was traded to the Mets. In what? Wait, let me see if I can do this. Was he traded to the Mets in the summer of 09? Yeah. Okay. And then they traded him away uh, just over a year later. No way. Yeah. A year and a year and seven weeks later, August 31st. They traded into the Rangers for Joaquin Arias. Oh, yeah. That was the trade, wasn't it? Yeah. So he was only on the team for a little over a year. So I guess it was probably 2010 that I buy MLB the show. I got my dude, right? Make it up. I'm excited. I'm like, all right. I got this video game under control. Things are going well. And I'm on like the 2012 or 13 Mets. And various parts have changed, and Frank Cora is still the everyday right fielder <laughs> on the team. And I remember being like, "Damn you, MLB the show!" I didn't, I didn't pay for this. I didn't want to have a career where I got stuck with Frank Cora being my right fielder. But yeah, he was only on the team for a little over a year. That seems like black magic bullshit. <laughs> seems like you somehow changed the way that the uh, the records were kept on the internet or something. That's crazy. He never had a second sit in the Mets, did he? No, no, no. Man. Not, not yet, anyway. Oh. Is Things still... have to go really wrong in the outfield for that to happen. Is he still poking around? Uh, Let's see. Has he taken a professional bat this year yet? That is really the question. I know he's not in the majors. Yet. Right. Let's see. Minor league. No. Did he retire? He might have. Or he might have not officially retired. Yeah. You know. I feel like he is totally the wrong type of player, but the right type of personality to be the king of Japan. Yeah. Or Korea. He could be the next Eric Thames. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the thing. <laughs> I somehow drafted him on my fantasy team in the last round. Trade him like today. Well, he he <laughs> he, uh, he came up limp today. So yeah, you're only good as your your recent performance. Yeah, in the eyes of some. Oh boy. Um. But so anyway, to, to sort of circle back to the question here. <laughs> Um, what, you don't want to talk about Jeff, Jeff Rancor for I, another half hour? I'd really rather not, but you know, <laughs> that's no offense to the company I'm keeping. That's just my, my Jeff Rancor, uh, aversion here. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I think that Rosario makes a lot of sense for this team. The, the second after the super two deadline passes, they should be calling him up. And I think that the, uh, the Dom Smith situation is a little bit more, Precarious for a few reasons. I think Duda will be back sooner than later. I think Duda has way more in the tank than 
maybe some of his detractors believe. I think that Duda will undoubtedly, if he stays healthy, have a better year than Dom Smith would have at the majors. And I think that because Duda's contract is up uh, after this season, there's no reason to rush Smith. It's not like uh, it's not like Dom Smith is going anyplace. Right. Yeah, no, he's not. And just because, you know, I'm repeating myself, but Bruce being able to handle it and due to not being on the shelf, uh, you know, for a long-term period, uh, I'm okay with letting Smith just keep doing his thing. And, you know, ideally in that environment, I'd like to see him hitting several home runs per month. <laughs> you know, it's not. And we all love John Olerud. Dude was amazing. Yep. But getting up to that level of defense and, you know, high average, high on base, good walk rate kind of performance is rare. You know, you, Olerud was not a guy who was in the Hall of Fame discussion, although you could argue he should have at least been around for more than a ballot. Yep. But to rise to that level of underappreciated great performance at first base because of the style you did it in is really rare. And he's not going to be a Keith Hernandez defensive specialist either. Right. And his defense might be good, but Keith was like legendary. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, and it's not even knocking, you know, he hit 14 home runs last year in double-A. That was the first time he got to double digits. Power doesn't always come early in a guy's career. He's still just 22, 21, 21. He'll be 22 in June. Um, so it's not like doom casting the rest of his career as a power hitter. But in Vegas, I would like to see him hit a lot of home runs because it's Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> Like, if you hit 14 in Binghamton, I would hope you would hit 28 in the Pacific Coast League. Um, just because. It's a, it's a lot easier, and it's something that I think would be encouraging. If he hits 28 there, then maybe you can expect 15 in the majors. Right. Well, Chris, the next time we speak, let's hope the Mets have won a couple of games. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's just what I get for saying, "Hey, let's let's try to get a Mets win before we record the episode." You and did say work, that. We got a rain out and an eight-two loss that was over in the first inning. <laughs> not not many eight-two losses end late in the game. But that is this true. One ended particularly early. This one, I mean, I guess it ended with one out in the in the first inning, right? Essentially, yeah. Yeah, Gazelman just he wasn't fooling anybody. Now, he looked better as the game went on before he looked worse, but you know. Yeah, well, I mean, it looked like he just got tired late in the start, but yeah, yeah. Do you give him two more starts before the real panic sets in? Uh, as someone who is not freaked out about rotation depth, I give him a million more starts. <laughs> I'm gonna hold you to that number: one million more starts. Yes, I think he's capable. Okay. We'll check him next week.
Hey everyone, this is Steve Saipa, and I'm back to go over our minor league players of the week for week 3. So before we get to that, let's just look and see how all the affiliates are doing. Las Vegas 51s went 4-3 and three for the week, and are entering week 4 with a 9-8 and eight record, which puts them two games behind the Salt Lake Bees for first place in the division. The Binghamton Rumble Ponies are 2-2, two and two, with two rain postponements, and are entering week 4 with a 6-7 and seven record, which puts them two games behind the Portland Sea Dogs and the Trenton Thunder for first place. The St. Lucie Mets went 2-5 and five and are entering the week with a 7-10 and 10 record, which puts them two games behind the Bradenton Marauders, the Jupiter Hammerheads, and the Palm Beach Cardinals for first place. And finally, the Columbia Fireflies went 3-4 and four and are entering the week with a 10-7 and seven record, which puts them one game behind the Rome Braves for first place in the division. So, for week 3... Our pitcher of the week is Columbia Fireflies right-hander Mirandi Gonzalez. He pitched one game this week. Uh, he went seven innings, giving up three hits, walking none, and striking out seven. So this is the third week now that a Firefly pitcher has been the pitcher of the week, and that's no coincidence. Uh, Columbia has a collective team ERA of 2.64, and that's with Harold Gonzalez and Gabriel Yanez inflating things right now with their 5.62 and 4.86 ERAs, respectively. So... Mirandi was signed as an IFA in 2013 at the Dominican Republic, and he spent two years out there on the DSL teams before coming stateside in 2015 with the GCL Mets and then Kingsport. Uh, he was good down there, but he really came into prominence last season when he pitched with the Cyclones. Um, he might have not gotten as much attention as Harold Gonzalez did or Justin Dunn, but he was every ounce as good. On 69 innings, he posted a 2.87 ERA, with 65 hits allowed, 27 walks, and 71 strikeouts. So his fastball is his best pitch, and he leans hard on it. Uh, it sits in the low to mid-90s with great life, topping out as high as 97 miles per hour. He's a stocky 6'1", 295, so it's unlikely that he really adds that much more to his fastball. But that's okay, because it already fits the bill of a major league caliber pitch. And because of all the life that it has to it, though, Mirandi sometimes has problems controlling it, which is why he only pitched 69 innings last season. Um, on more than one occasion, he was forced to leave a start because either he reached organizational limits on um, the amount of pitches that he could throw per inning, or he reached the amount of pitches that they did not want to go past per game. So he rounds out his arsenal with a curveball and a changeup. And generally speaking, he's probably about 70% changeable. Changeable, what the hell am I saying? He's about 70% fastball, 20% curveball, and 10% changeup. So the curve is a little inconsistent, but it's flash plus at times. Uh, it sits about 77 to 81 with 11 to 5 drop, and he hides it well in his hands, so it has a little deception. But he also tends to telegraph the pitch. Um, you know, he slows his arm down a little bit to guide the pitch into either the zone or out of the zone. So that kind of counteracts the deception that he gets from hiding the pitch in his hand. He likes throwing it sometimes to the point where he uses a little bit too much. But his confidence in the pitch is a good thing. You know, he's not afraid to throw it in any count. He's not afraid to throw it, you know, for strikes. He's not afraid to throw it for balls to make uh, batters go fishing, so that's good. 
Next up is his changeup, his third pitch, and that sits about you know 82 to 85. It has a little bit of uh, sync to it, but not much, and as a result, it's a below-average pitch. But he has made some progress with it, um, enough to make me think that it could be you know an average offering or so relatively soon. In 2015, it was a pretty well below-average pitch. Last season, it was still below average, but it flashed average more and more, especially as the season went on. So, you know, if he continues improving and, and gets a little more sink and fade on the pitch, it wouldn't surprise me to see it graded, you know, as an average pitch uh, by the end of the year. And that would give him, you know, a, a plus fastball, a inconsistent curveball that flashes plus, and then an inconsistent change that flashes, you know, average, which is not bad for a guy that's in the South Atlantic League. So, next up is our hit of the week for week three, and that is St. Lucie Mets first baseman, Johan Arreño. He went 5-18 and with two doubles, one home run, three RBI, and ten walks, one of which was intentional, and four strikeouts. So, Urania is a guy that's been off my radar for a couple of years now, um, but it wasn't really that long ago that he was thought of as, you know, kind of peripheral top prospect. In 2015, Amazing Avenue ranked him the Mets' 14th best prospect, and last year in 2016, we ranked him the Mets' 21st top prospect. So, he was ranked, he was thought of so highly then because in 2013, as an 18-year-old, he hit 299. 351, 376 in the GCL, and then in 2014, he hit 300, 356, 431 as a 19-year-old in the New York Penn League. And combined with the scouting reports, it looked like the Mets might have had something. Um, They initially sent him up to St. Lucie, oh, excuse me, they sent him down to St. Lucie uh, in 2016, and that was a pretty aggressive assignment, and as a result, he struggled mightily. Uh, he broke both of his hamate bones, and for the year he hit a miserable uh, 214, 257, 267 in 64 games. And last season he wasn't that much better either. He stayed on the field at least, he got into 115 games, but again he started off the year terribly and it didn't get that much better. He was a little better in the second half, he hit 257, 340, 406. As opposed to uh, 197, 266, 303 in the first half. But it was still a a pretty terrible showing for himself um, over the course of the entire year. The one good thing that we could take out of it, though, is that he was hitting more home runs last year. He hit nine uh, as opposed to the two that he hit in 2015 and five that he hit in 2014. But even with those nine home runs... He logged so few other hits that he only slugged 350, which is kind of, you know, it would be hilarious if it wasn't that bad. So, surprisingly, though, looking at his, you know, his scouting report, surprisingly, he doesn't really have that bad of an actual hit tool. And when I say that, I mean it's kind of, you know, it's mechanically sound. Uh, he has good bat speed and he has good barrel control from both sides. He's a switch hitter. His swing isn't overly level and it's not comically, you know, uppercutty. Um, sometimes his leg kick and his low transfer get out of sync, which causes him to, you know, be weak, uh, to be late and get weak contact. But the biggest problem is his, uh, pitch recognition. I mean, you can have one of the most amazing swings, you can have the most beautiful swing, you can be Ken Griffey Jr., but if you can't recognize what the pitch is and where it's going, you can't hit it. 
And the fact that he's generally been very aggressive at the plate hasn't helped much either. You know, he's going up there with the intent of swinging. He doesn't know what he's seeing, but he feels he feels compelled to swing at it. And that's going to lead to um, some really low batting averages. Uh, he's bat actually below his listed weight, which is 230, for the last two years. So he's having a strong start to the season this year. And the fact that he's walking a ton is probably not a coincidence. Through 16 games now, he is walking at a 20% rate and striking out at a 16% rate. That 16% rate is about you know roughly average for where he's been the last couple of years. So has he finally learned to recognize spin? And, you know, is he finally going to be less aggressive and wait until pitchers give him something that he likes? Instead of just swinging at everything that they throw him, you know, I, I don't know. Urania is 22, so even though it feels like he's been around forever, you know, this is his third uh, year in the Florida State League, he isn't really that old. He also dealt with injuries in 2015 and 2016 that had to have had a, an impact on his baseball development. So only time will tell, I guess. You know, we're not even a month in, so let's see how the season goes. If he's still showing patience like this at the plate in July, you know, maybe he uh, he's turned a corner. You know, we'll see. And just to, you know, uh, complete the scattering report on Urania, he's played third base for most of his career. He's uh, better suited as a first baseman, though. Uh, he has a strong arm, and he has a passable glove, which works at third. But he isn't particularly rangy, and he probably doesn't have a single uh, quick twitch muscle in his body. <laughs> And then related to that is that he's a below-average runner. Though, you know, like most stockier kind of athletes, once he gets going and he hits his stride, he's, you know, he's all right out there. It just takes a while for him to hit that top speed. So anyway, those are our Mets Minor League Plays of the Week for Week 3. And I'll be back next week on Mason Avenue Audio. all the physical ailments hampering the Mets right now, none can match the hurt that these five devastating injuries placed on the franchise. We begin with number five and a tie amongst three pitchers that were supposed to head a resurgence. The young trio of Bill Pulsiver, Jason Isringhausen, and Paul Wilson, dubbed Generation K, came to the majors in the mid-1990s with lofty ambitions, but it didn't take long for those high hopes to sink as injuries derailed any chance of living up to expectations. For Pulsiver, he had thrown more than 200 innings in double-A ball in 1994 as a 20-year-old. His combined inning total in 1995, both at AAA and with the Mets, was 218. During his time in the majors that year, Pulsiver had a respectable 3.98 ERA and 17 starts. But, not surprisingly, his weary arm broke down prior to 1996, and a torn elbow ligament forced him to miss the better part of two seasons. Jason Isringhausen, who came in July 1995, looked very promising at first, posting nine wins and an ERA under three. Then the injuries mounted over the next two years. Reconstructive elbow surgery forced him to miss all of 1998, and he was traded to Oakland in 1999. Like Pulsiver, Paul Wilson, the top overall pick in the 1994 amateur draft, was a victim of overuse, and that led him to be out for most of 1996 before he could really get his career started. He wouldn't return to the big leagues until 2000 with Tampa Bay. On to number four, and Dwight Gooden in 1989. 
Doc's 88 campaign included 18 victories, 10 complete games, and the start in the All-Star game. His 89 season began very well, 5-0 with a 2.03 ERA through May 1st. He was on pace for a 200-strikeout season by July 1st, when his start in Cincinnati ended prematurely. He was removed after just two innings, and a shoulder injury was soon diagnosed, shelving him for more than two months. He returned for two relief outings in September, but by that time, the Mets were just about out of contention. The 2006 Mets, however, left the National League East in the dust, coasting to the division title by a 12-game spread. Heading to the playoffs, they posed a mix of young stars and a veteran pitching staff capable of World Series glory. Only one of those veteran arms wouldn't get a chance to add to his postseason excellence, and it's the number three most devastating injury in Mets history. Orlando Hernandez, the Cuban defector who spent masterful October outings in Yankee pinstripes and won nine games for the Mets in 2006, tore a muscle in his calf while running sprints a day prior to the National League Division Series. El Duque had to be scratched from the postseason roster, and the Mets were without this big-game performer. Now to number two, and a pair of injuries in consecutive seasons for Bob Ojeda. The left-hander was arguably the most underrated member of the 1986 Mets, posting a team-high 18 victories. He wasn't as fortunate in 1987, as a bum elbow in May required season-ending surgery and further depleted New York's rotation that year. It was an injury that threatened to end his career, but Ojeda came back in 88 to toss five complete games and record an ERA of 2.88. Then, on the eve of the Mets clinching the NL East, his fate took another downward turn. While at home trimming hedges in his garden, he all but severed the tip of the middle finger on his pitching hand. His season was certainly over, and his career was in jeopardy once more. The Mets went into the NLCS against the Dodgers heavily favored, but of course, they'd be vanquished in seven games. Who knows what kind of a difference Ojeda would have made. Bobby O's off-the-field episode doesn't surpass the unfortunate taxi ride taken by relief pitcher Dwaner Sanchez in late July 2006. Sanchez was a passenger as the cab he was aboard in Miami got into an accident caused by a drunk driver. His shoulder was separated and the season was over for the man who had brilliantly set up closer Billy Wagner by allowing just 16 earned runs over 55 and a third's innings. Once the news of his accident was passed to the Mets' front office, the team hastily tried to strike a deal for a reliever just under the July 31st trade deadline. New York sent outfielder Xavier Nady to Pittsburgh in exchange for Roberto Hernandez and the infamous Oliver Perez. For Sanchez, he was unable to fully recover from his injury and never performed to the level he was at in 2006. For the Mets... The bullpen in 06 never made up for their loss, despite cruising into the postseason. However, a healthy Sanchez, and keeping a role player like Xavier Nady, would have bettered their chances of advancing past the NLCS. That's all for this list. I'm Brian Wright. You can follow me on Twitter, at BrianWright86. Hi, this is Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio, and today I want to discuss some offensive issues with the Mets in more ways than one. Get it? Because their offense has been bad. And what I hear from pundits around the baseball world is that the Mets rely too much on the home run, and they've got to hope that their pitching staff 
steps up its game, and it, and it's been pretty good so far. But the Mets have got to hope that the pitching staff is just excellent because they cannot score runs while hoping that everyone hits the ball out of the park. But I don't think the flaw is that is in the Mets' strategy. This team was built around taking the ball deep with a lot of guys with the potential to hit 30 home runs, although I'm not sure Curtis Granderson's going to get there this year, but it looks like Jay Bruce has a good chance. Maybe Michael Conforto, if his excellent April translates into further success this time around. But the Mets just don't do their strategy well, and they have too many holes in the lineup that is really holding the offense back. We've seen through the years from statistical data that baseball is all about getting on base and hitting for power. That's how you score runs. Running the bases well and stolen bases and all that certainly help, but the more, most important things are getting on base and hitting for power. And the Mets do half of that equation right, but that's the hitting for power part, but they don't always get on base. And of course, these injuries have only made it harder to score runs. And that's why I still think their offense has a lot of upside going forward, especially when you look at what Conforto's done. That's probably the brightest spot of the season so far when you consider that him and Cespedes are the two most, they're signed to the longest contract, or at least Conforto is under team control and Cespedes is under the contract. The point is, those guys are probably me with the team for the next four years and everyone else we're not so sure about. So it's good that the the guys you have long-term are playing the best. That's a positive for the Mets. But you look around the lineup, Travis Darno, just when he looks like he's putting it together again, he gets hurt. Again, a familiar story for Mets fans. Neil Walker, not off to the hot start that he got off to last year. And he's kind of a tweener. He's not a great power hitter. He's not a great on-base guy. He's just a kind of jack-of-all-trades. He's not the best defensive second baseman, but you can live with him. Kind of same with us, Drupal Cabrera, although I think his lack of athleticism at shortstop is really starting to show now, and that's only going to further calls for Ahmed Rosario. But the point is that the Mets are... The strategy of, of hitting home runs and walking is, is fine. It's acceptable. The execution has not been great so far, and that's because of guys like Cabrera and Neil Walker, especially when nowadays we expect our middle infielders to be offensive weapons and not just guys who who bunt and move runners along and hit singles and kind of get out of the way and play good defense. Especially when you have a guy like Cabrera, you need more offense out of him than the Mets are getting. And, of course, you add in Lucas Duda getting hurt, and the guy we want to replace him, Wilmer Flores, getting hurt. And Curtis Granderson, he's been a great contract, but he finally looks like he's slowing down, although still too early to say that's a lost year for him. The point is, the Mets have a lot of issues on offense. The biggest one's probably third base. Again, Wilmer Flores will come in to play. He was a guy who could play there, and hopefully he gets over this infection quickly and gets well soon. But Jose Reyes giving them nothing is certainly not helping matters when you're talking about a position that everyone expects power from, third base. So 
the Mets just don't have a complete offense right now, and it's, it's not necessarily because of the lack of athleticism. We see the guys who are hitting home runs and who are getting on base are doing a good job at that. Jay Bruce, Ioannis Cespedes, Michael Conforto, but the Mets need more. With teams hitting around a home run or home run and a half on average these days, the issue is getting guys on base for those home run hitters to drive in, and that's been an issue for the Mets so far. With that top two spot in the lineup, the one and two spots in the lineup, it was a good idea to move Michael Conforto there, get him as many at-bats as possible. That's great. But the number two spot, maybe the Mets should fill that in with a guy who's been hitting the ball better instead of just sticking as Drupal Cabrera there because he's done a lot of that in his career. Maybe just bump Bruce up to two and have your top three be Conforto, Bruce, and Cespedes since those are your three best hitters right now. Just having three hot hitters in a row might help jumpstart the offense and then let the guys after that figure it out. If you want to put Curtis Granderson in cleanup, fine. It's just that number two spot should probably be filled by a better hitter, although lineup construction, not the team's biggest problem. Just the Mets need to get more guys on base for their home run hitters. That's the issue right now because they're doing the hitting for power part okay. They're not getting on base enough. This was a problem last year as well. It's going to continue to be a problem as long as they're plagued by injuries and Jose Reyes. So hopefully the Mets can get some great starting pitching or continue to get some great starting pitching and turn their offense around, get a little healthier, get a few more guys on base make a little more contact, and then those home runs will turn from one, one some solo shots to crooked numbers, and that's what we want to see out of the New York Mets going forward. This has been Aaron York from Mason Avenue Audio. Hi, it's Kate with this week's Panic City Meter. And it's mostly just an injury update again, because that's apparently what the Mets are. They're just one transaction log after another. Except they're not because they don't actually DL anybody. Which I can't even... I don't have the energy to get into today. Because it's absurd, and it's literally a 10-day DL. And you still have your NSS but sitting for five days. And Travis Darno not playing. But you won't DL them for whatever reason there is. Anyway, the Mets still haven't looked great. Mostly because everyone's been hurt. Um, Cespedes and Darno are supposed to come back. Well, it was supposed to be yesterday. It was rained out. It's supposed to be today, which is going to be your yesterday by the time you listen to this. So you'll know if they came back in a Wednesday night's game. Fingers crossed they did and looked great. Um, they messed with the rotation a bit, and now it's back to normal. We're going to get Dickie Syndergaard on Thursday, which I personally am just very excited about. Lucas Duda's supposed to be back. Wilmer Flores was hospitalized with a knee infection, and then maybe more, but not, and now he's supposed to be getting better. You can't even keep track of all the injuries. And so once again, I think this is the third week in a row I've said this, but I really can't judge this team because I have no idea who's playing healthy or what they're going to look like when they actually are healthy. Jay Bruce is still hitting. Jose Reyes is still not, you know... As the, you know, as the earth turns, we're just going to keep going there. 
Michael Conforto has looked phenomenal, which, you know, nobody expected. Hint, hint. And, it's again, it's just there's too many injuries to properly assess this team so far. So, fingers crossed, everyone gets healthy eventually. Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you for listening. I know it's hard to listen when the team looks like garbage, but thank you. We really do appreciate it. Uh, please continue to send us your emails, podcast at AmazingAvenueAudio.com. Also, go to Amazing Avenue for all the Mets coverage you could want, hopefully even some good stuff, some happy stuff. I promise at least once a day there's something vaguely happy on AmazingAvenue.com. So seek it out, and let's... Uh, Let's hope that that number increases steadily by the next time we speak. You can also find Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on your podcatcher of choice. And we would appreciate if you were to rate, review, and subscribe on those different services, but especially Apple Podcasts, the for- the artist formerly known as iTunes. And uh, you can follow all of us on Twitter. I'm at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Steve is at Steve Saipa. Kate is at Kate E. Feldman, Aaron York's at Aaron P. York, and Brian Wright is at Brian Wright 1986. So until next time, my friends, let's um let's pray for some off- offense. Let's pray for some uh some not terrible pitching. And uh, until next time, let's go Mets.